The Energy Gang is supported by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world. If you're not using SunGrow inverters, what are you doing? It is now a leading supplier across the Americas, too. With the world's most powerful 250-kilowatt, 1,500-volt string inverter, SunGrow is providing disruptive technology for utility-scale projects, both solar and storage. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. And don't forget to download GTM's new iOS news app in the Apple Store. We've got an Android one coming as well, so don't fret, Android users. It is redesigned and the perfect way to get all the top clean energy business news on your phone. If you prefer the old-fashioned way, go to greentechmedia.com newsletters to sign up for email news in your inbox every morning. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. Welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. I am your host and a contributing editor at GTM. This week, with flight shame growing in popularity, extreme weather intensifying, and the Amazon in flames, there's more demand than ever for carbon offsets to assuage guilt and make us feel like we're doing something, anything. But those credits may not be doing what you think they are, or in some cases, doing anything at all. We are digging into the complicated and frustrating world of carbon offsets. There's a reason why even the United Nations is now calling out their limitations. Then, new climate plans from Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang days after Jay Inslee leaves the race. What's in them? And who will become the climate candidate? Finally, we dig into a bill from Ohio that bails out big utilities and guts clean energy. The politics of this thing are ugly, and they are only getting uglier. Back in Washington, D.C. this week is Catherine Hamilton our co-host and chair of 38 North Solutions. From the lake house to the House of Representatives, how much anxiety are you feeling being back in the nation's capital after a few weeks of vacation? Well, luckily, Congress is still out. But I will tell you the drive down from being in the mountains and super remote for th- like almost an entire month. Um, even my dog was completely stressed. She's like, what are all these cars and people doing here? Back from his own trip... Uh, who knows what kind of shock he's feeling just in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, outside of D.C. It's Jigger Shaw. He's the president of Generate Capital. Jigger, are you feeling um, a sense of shock after your Iceland trip coming back to the United States? No. Are you kidding me? It's always good to come back home. <laughs> what was your favorite thing about Iceland? Well, I have to say the the beauty of Iceland, even though like they really hype it up, it still far exceeds the hype. It's really a beautiful place. My sister is there now with her kids, and the pictures she's posting on Instagram are unbelievable, Jigger. Yeah, I mean, and you can really get right up close. Like my three-and-a-half-year-old, we walked behind a waterfall, and we were climbing boulders near the beach. I mean, it really is all the things that you'd want it to be and more. Did you go see that memorial for the glacier? I think a couple weeks ago they put that up. Did you, you you saw that on social media, right? I did. So there was somebody who was commenting in the bar that I was in that Angela Merkel was like walking by and it was she was walking like I think it was like 50 feet from where we were staying, so I just missed her. <laughs> so I don't want to put you both on the spot, but I'm going to. Did either of you buy carbon offsets for your travel? Hell no. <laughs> Why not? Because I know what they get used for. <laughs> no, I have a I have a hybrid, and I was just busy trying to hypermile. Well, uh, yeah, you, you, you're, you're, the point source technology is most important. Well, we are going to unpack what is behind them and why you may have some doubts next time you go to press that button when you buy your your flight and you know try to offset your travel with some carbon offsets. But a lot of people don't realize the darker side of carbon offsets. A a bunch of things are happening all at once. There's this concept of flight shame that's spreading around Europe. Climate scientists and academics and folks like Greta Thunberg, who just arrived in New York yesterday by boat, are calling on people to travel by air less uh, or purchase carbon offsets to offset the emissions of flying. Some providers have seen seen demand for offsets double or even expand fivefold in the last year, according to a story in Bloomberg. Meanwhile, California is looking to expand its carbon trading program to include international deforestation prevention. And all this is happening while tens of thousands of fires are burning in the Amazon 
turning attention once again to preserving forests. So carbon credits can be used for all kinds of things, supporting a renewables project, more efficient stoves in developing countries, biogas, methane capture, soil management, saving or planting trees. But are these credits actually doing what buyers think they are? Offsets have long been criticized, but a new investigation in ProPublica found that some of the most prominent forest preservation projects supported by a UN program were not working, and credits were being issued while forests were being cut down. So before we talk about the problems with this specific kind of offset, let's just talk quickly about why we're having this conversation, why it's become so important once again. So Catherine, what's with the boom now? Why are carbon offsets all of a sudden more popular? Well, I think this has gotten into the collective consciousness of people and corporations. I mean, we are in the middle of an energy transition and young people are rising up. And, you know, we've had all these structures in place for a while. So in 2007, the Kyoto Protocol put together this clean development mechanism that would issue uh, certified emission reductions for industry and countries that would be able to have flexibility in offsetting um, their own emissions by supporting projects of all types. And what they found in a report in 2016 was that 85% of these offsets had a very low likelihood of impact at all. And so not only is there a focus on we need to do something now, but there's also this issue of, well, is what we've been doing doing anything anyway? Okay, so we're using this very generalized term, a carbon offset, also known as a carbon credit. What are these things, Jigger? What kind of projects are people supporting when they buy them? And how easy is it to track what kind of project you're supporting? Well, technically, there's extraordinary work being done in all these areas, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, red projects where you're taking existing forests and you're paying indigenous people not to cut them down. And so you're you're sequestering that carbon in forests or, uh, you know, whether it's co- clean cook stoves from around the world and, you know, you're getting people not to cut down their local trees to burn charcoal or burn, you know, wood to to cook, right? And instead you're using solar cook stoves, right? I mean, all of these ideas are really awesome, great sounding ideas. And when they put them on a website with beautiful pictures, it just makes you want to click and, you know, and, and support that. But it's not unlike Rex from, you know, 15, 20 years ago, where people were just taking existing projects, selling Rex to Whole Foods and saying, hey, you know, we're 100% clean energy now. We don't have to worry about it. I think, you know, when you think about what is required to really, you know, move the ball forward, you really have to think about additionality and say, is the money that I'm providing someone just supporting something that would have happened anyway? Or is it actually going to creating something new and creating a new behavior that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And that's where I think a lot of these projects turn out to be less, um, you know, less effective than, you know, folks otherwise advertised. Yeah. And there's an issue of permanence. So if you're, are you going to keep that piece of coal underground forever? So if you, if you reduce the carbon with this project, is it just going to you know, either not sustain or happen elsewhere. So there's about $200 million a year in sales of carbon credits. And many of those transactions are for consumers who are trying to offset their flying. Now, the breakdown is all across the board, as we've described. It's deforestation prevention, it's renewable energy projects, biogas projects, methane capture, clean cook stoves, you name it. Um the deforestation piece is really interesting because a lot of people had have criticized this UN Red program, um, saying again that it was very hard to track deforestation projects. Uh, the issue of permanence was a real problem. How long you have to keep these forests and these trees growing for a hundred years to see the carbon benefit? So. Um, ProPublica released this really scathing report uh, about a month ago or two months ago where reporter Lisa Song, who is a fantastic journalist, by the way, was at Inside Climate News, won a Pulitzer Prize for some of her reporting on a a pipeline disaster in the Midwest. She actually went to some of these areas where these deforestation prevention projects are are taking place. She looked at satellite imagery and found 
that uh, you know most of the trees had been cut down, that these projects weren't actually doing what they said that they were going to be doing. And she also faced a lot of resistance from her questioning of these projects. A lot of academics and proponents of these plans who really don't know what else to do to prevent deforestation, who say like, well, this is our last line of defense. They were really critical of her poking around. So you had this really broken system. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about it. Catherine, you've dug into this as well. What is your understanding of the problems with the deforestation credits that people are relying on. Yeah. And I just, let me just make it very clear because when I was doing this, I'm not an expert. So I reached out to, to some folks and there's a difference between reducing deforestation and reforestation. Okay. So as you said, um, carbon is hidden in trees. And if you cut down a tree before 100 years, all that carbon goes back into the atmosphere. So one of the key things is to not allow trees to get cut down in the first place, because when you try re- reforestation, you don't even see the impacts of that for a hundred years. So when when people say, "Oh, let's just do more building of forests," that's great, but you don't know what the result of that is for a very long time. So one of the keys is to reduce deforestation. And it's very hard to monitor because there's some ways in which you know trees can be cut down in ways that you can't observe them from the sky. You can't see because they're below you know a certain level. So there are all kinds of ways to game the system and in in fact, you make more money by saying there is greater deforestation than there may or may not be, but you make more money by claiming it. So you may not even be able to, the accounting doesn't work out. So I reached out to Steve Schwartzman, who's the Senior Director for Tropical Forest Policy at the Environmental Defense Fund. And what he said was that the California Air Resources Board has a new tropical forest standard that in September is due to be approved by CARB, the Air Resources Board, it's already been um, given a stamp of approval by the California General Assembly. But what he says is it addresses a few things that are problematic right now, which is one is that you have to be able to count reductions that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So as Jigger alluded to, projects, there were already projects going forward. You can't claim credit for those because those were already going forward. Another thing is making sure that you have third-party verification so that there's not some kind of a self-verification verification process that that there isn't a lot that you really have to dig in and make sure that the metrics are counted and you're able to verify them. Another is the requirements of permanence. So making sure that this CO2 reduction will stay and that, you know, another you know, you do this pilot project and then a year later all the trees are cut down. You want to make sure there's permanent. You want to make sure that you avoid leakage so that you're not just moving emissions around. So you may not do a project you know, in one place, or you might do a project in one place and emissions pop up somewhere else. So make sure that there's no leakage. Make sure that there are social and environmental safeguards and also make sure that the credit, and this is especially important under California, is under their existing offset limit. So right now their offset limits are between four and 6%. So that's what they're looking at for this program. So it doesn't end up swamping the program. So it seems that this kind of policy could potentially take care of some of the issues that we are seeing with all these pilot projects here and there that really aren't making a difference. That seems so insanely hard. That set of standards that you just described right there feels really complex, particularly when you think about how local needs often trump international agreements. This stuff is so hard to control. And that litany of standards that we need to put in place seems very difficult. And one thing that is also evident in a lot of the reporting is that it's not like the projects that have been done aren't any good at all. Like some of them are good projects. They just aren't doing what we need them to do to prevent climate change. So they're, they're not having the impact that we need. They may still have really good impacts, but something that is a standard that if California can pilot it and make sure that it works. And remember, California's rainfall is impacted by the Amazon itself. So, you know, if we look at things holistically and if California can do it right and set the standard that globally we can accept, maybe there will be more checks and balances. Okay, so this 2016 report found that 85% of offsets had a low likelihood of creating real impacts. There have been very serious concerns raised about the impact of um, reforestation or deforestation prevention projects. Jigger, are you at all a believer that this stuff can be reformed enough to make an impact? No. (laughs) Why not? 
It's just too hard, as you said. I, look, I think that we should save for us. Totally agree that we should save for us. I don't think we should use capitalism to save for us. I don't understand why everybody wants to use capitalism for everything. There are some it's things coming from the guy who loves capitalism. Yeah, too. but there are some things you should just like say no. You can't cut down the forest, and if you cut down the forest, then we're gonna like you know have people chain themselves to trees, and we're just gonna like you know do all these things that protect forests. Like I just don't understand why every single time you know we want to do something, there's like oh we need an offset, we need this, we need to like have a platform, they need to be tradable. No, no, some things are just things that you don't do. You just gotta stop cutting down forests and then if there are people who are affected by not being able to cut down forests need to figure out what to do to help those people because they're in poverty and they want to farm and you got to figure out what to do to help them with alternative you know means of providing for their family but i just think the notion that that you're gonna like pay people not to cut down forests i remember when they were pitching all this stuff to me back in 2011 and 2010 when i was running the carb morum and we thought it was crazy back then it's still crazy well, actually, I think that Brazil was a little more complicated because they did try, you know, there were some industries like rubber, Brazil nuts, fish ponds. There were industries that were not going to cause deforestation that sh- that were trying to be supported. They didn't do enough. They didn't, you know, give them enough tools to actually make them work. But I don't think chaining yourself to trees is going to do it. I actually do think you have to put into some kind of financial incentives to retain industry, make sure industry can grow without deforestation. And um, and so th- I do think that there's going to have to be some kind of financial incentive or disincentive, a fine for, for getting rid of it. But one of the things that um, Steve Schwartzman was saying was that the difference in program design is going to be really critical because the programs under RED, this reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation program under the UN, have been very project specific. And that is much different than doing larger scale jurisdictional regional programs that um, are going to allow for a lot more solutions and not just be limited project by project. I guess the question I have now is, should California be relying on this tropical forest standard? I mean, does it make... Knowing what we know about the ineffectiveness of many of these programs, does it make California's cap-and-trade system a sham? No, I don't think so at all. I think we have to test drive this. I think this is something that's brand new. Um, It's really trying to make the programs that haven't been effective much better and to try to fill some of those holes. Now, I think we have to be realistic that, you know, we're going to need more than polluters paying for credits that may or may not happen. However, if it's only four to six percent of their cap and trade program, I think it's worth giving it a shot and they have to change these deforestation programs to make them better. So I think this is this could potentially be a model. I don't know. I, I think they should not do it anymore. My sense is, is that if they shifted that money instead to pay Midwestern farmers to sequester carbon in their soil, I think that would be far more successful. Separately, there's zero market in California for biochar. They could use that money to buy biochar, which is also sequestered carbon and and create a market for that. There's lots of other things they could do with that money that would be far easier to trace than the tropical forest standard. Right. So I guess that brings me to the very last question, which is if you were presented with an option when you were buying your plane ticket and they could give you an option for the type of project that you would support with your carbon offset, what kind of project do you think would have the most impact? None. I would. I would. <laughs> come no, on. No, I mean, come on. Seriously, you're gonna go to a guy or, or a woman on <laughs> an w- airplane website. You're gonna give them like ten choices, and they're gonna pick one that's more effective. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'd rather see public policy put into place, like no fossil fuels on public lands. Um, you know, things that would prevent anyone from building more fossil fuels. Yeah, I'd rather they'd like. I'd rather they allow that money to go to like Greenpeace, and then then Greenpeace actually goes out and protects a bunch of forests. Like, I honestly think this entire carbon offset market is the same thing as Rex, and I've I've hated both for a very long time. <laughs> well, the United Nations recently issued a, a blog post uh, talking about the limitations of carbon credits. This is obviously a body that has uh, tied climate action very closely to carbon offset systems, and that is certainly changing out of recognition that these this is a very flawed system. We're going to take a quick break to talk about our supporter, SunGrow. 
SunGrow is helping build some of the biggest, most sophisticated power plants in the world by supplying the most sophisticated inverters. It's got 82 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe, and uh, it's expanding rapidly in the U.S. It's got one and a half gigawatts of projects booked in this country alone. One of those projects is for a 27 megawatt Navajo Tribal Utility Authority, a replacement for a coal power plant. Um, This coal plant is shutting down later this year. And this 27-megawatt project is going to help double the amount of solar power in the Navajo Nation uh, in Kayenta, and it's going to help replace that coal plant. Um, also, the excess solar is going to be sold back to the grid, and it's going to earn money for the Navajo Nation. SunGrow is focused on storage, too, not just solar. It has 200-megawatt hours worth of battery projects across the U.S. Uh, tied to its inverters. Check out more about what SunGrow is up to at Solar Power International in Salt Lake this September. Just go to Booth. 2211 or go to sungrowpower.com Over to Bernie. The Bernie bros are celebrating the candidate's climate plan. After lagging the other presidential contenders, Bernie Sanders is out with his own $16 trillion package. He is just calling it the Green New Deal. It shoots for 100% renewable electricity, uh, actually 100% renewable energy for electricity and transportation by 2030. It seeks to end unemployment and transform the agricultural system through small farms. It also avoids carbon capture and nuclear. In other words, uh, in my humble opinion, this plan is pretty divorced from reality. Um, Andrew Yang on the other side uh, put out his plan. It's ca- it's called It's Worse Than You Think. <laughs> no joke. That is the name of the plan. This one is, is pretty different. It calls for investment in geoengineering, advanced nuclear, carbon fee and dividend, and payments to move people from areas threen- threatened by flooding. He literally wants to move millions of people. Um, so let's talk about Bernie's plan first. What did you all make of it? Jigger, what was your reaction to Bernie's plan? I have to say I got distracted. Because, I mean, of his no nuclear, defunding the IMF, divestment, it like felt like a way for him to scream about his views than actually trying to bring the full fight to climate change. I'm like totally missing the expertise of Inslee. Yeah, it seemed like it was broad strokes, um, which is interesting because the things he's done in, in the Senate have been very specific and you know, energy efficiency, you know, there have been different things that he's worked on that have been smaller pieces. So he has that ability to dive into the details. But this was very much about, we're going to pay for this within 10 years by eliminating all fossil fuel subsidies. That's a good thing. That's $15 billion, putting fees on polluters to the tune of $3.1 trillion and having the polluters actually be criminally responsible and accountable. So like lining up the oil execs, just like they did the tobacco execs um, to try to give them some accountability. Um, 1.2 trillion reductions in military oil spending. And then he has this 2.3 trillion in tax revenues and it's for renewables and jobs. And there's also something about new revenues from electricity customers. I'm not sure exactly what that is. Um, And then he provides for displaced fossil fuel workers. Um, So I think it's a good idea to be able to fund programs like the Appalachian Regional Commission that tries to help transition workers from the coal industry into cleaner or different types of industries. Um, So some of it seems it's it's very aspirational. It's good to get these ideas out there. the issue is that it's it's it is just aspirational and it's putting him out there as far as possible um, in the conversation. What I will say is that I think that some of these ideas are ones that I wish we would have talked a lot more about ten years ago, like you know reauthorizing and expanding the Civilian Conservation Corps and fully funding the Land and Water Conservation Corps is a big deal, right? Actually, and it's something that. You know, I think we should have done a lot more uh, in the era stimulus bill in that area. So I think that stuff's interesting. I also think, for instance, the, uh, you know, supporting small family farms by investing in ecologically regenerative and sustainable agriculture is a big deal. I, I'd still continue to believe that sequestering carbon in the soils um, is a is a really huge opportunity and one that the federal government should take on uh, directly. And so I think that the stress the stress he puts in that area I think is also very helpful. So I think there's some pieces of this that are interesting and helpful. I just think on balance it feels very sort of um, you know, sort of 
Bernie being more aspirational and less tactical. Yeah, but the small family farms thing is why I think it's unserious. I mean, you're not going to solve the agriculture emissions problem by investing in small family farms. Like, you need a centralized system with new technologies to, you know, create fertilizers without the use of natural gas. You know, unfortunately, there's going to be a level of major industrialization to the food system if you want to clean it up quickly. And the idea that we're just going to somehow, like, spread it out over family farms is insane. Like, it's not going to happen. And, like, of course, I support local farms. I want to get my food from places where I know it comes from. Like, all that stuff is great. But if you're going to use that strategy to solve climate change, it's not going to happen. And I just read stuff like that, and I'm shaking my head. But the the point of what he's trying to do, I think, from a you know, a big picture perspective is he's trying to mobilize young people and trying to mobilize from a very popular level, um, as opposed to the very wonky, you know, cap and trade bill, the Waxman Markey bill was very wonky. Everything was done very on an insider kind of basis. Businesses were at the table and everybody was you know trying to make sure they all had a piece of the pie. And this is really about art. Right, if you were going to really try to do something, let's just go for it. And granted, this is throwing a lot of stuff at the wall, a lot of which won't stick. Um, but some of it is, is you know, at least you've got sort of this left flank out there. And I think that is the whole point, is that we're able to come up with a lot of ideas. And one thing, you know, that I would like to see is more public-private partnerships and fun- financing mechanisms. And that's kind of not part of this. This is more about let the government support this. Um, but, you know, that's that's what it is. And that's what Bernie's, Bernie would stand for and put forward. And I think at least it gets people thinking about it more. Uh These are messaging documents. It's all about galvanizing the right people. And I agree that it probably galvanizes supporters and makes him one of the top climate candidates. Taking, you know, nuclear and geoengineering and CCS off the table is a little troublesome, not because I necessarily think those are going to be huge players anytime soon but just the idea that we would take tools off the table is a little bit worrisome who knows how that would actually play out in reality but you know bernie's a pretty steadfast guy so if if he's if he lays this out like i believe him that he wouldn't put uh that had he would he would like pick a certain subset of technologies and kind of ignore other stuff that we may need to be pursuing um but it's too early in the process to really like say how this would influence legitimate policy. Yeah, and don't worry because then you have Andrew Yang out there who instead wants to do all of those things that you said that Bernie doesn't want to do. <laughs> right, but he seems to want to he seems to want to do those exclusively or at least put a lot more stock into them than than others. So t- tell us about his plan, Catherine then. So he does have a carbon tax. He's very supportive of geoengineering and nuclear technologies like thorium and fusion right. that aren't even what is the nuclear technology that most people are doing now. And then he does a lot of this, you know, in the debate when they ask him about climate, he said, it's done, just move to higher ground. And that to me seemed just such a pat response and very flip. Um, But he talks in this, he spells it out a little bit more to give money to people for relocation and seawalls to combat wildfires, to, to pay for fire insurance. Um, So we're probably going to have to do all that anyway, but, it still feels like somebody who has a lot of money telling people that they can't stay where they need, where they make a living. Mm. For our listeners who've been listening to this show for a while, you know that we've argued and sometimes joked about Jigger telling people to move to find better jobs. To get uh, on a bus. <laughs> to get on a bus and go, you know, if they can't <laughs> find a job somewhere, go go find one elsewhere. Uh, Jigger, did you have any reaction to Andrew Yang's plan of uh, like saying, let's take these tens of millions of people who are threatened by climate change and just move them elsewhere? Well, I do like the support for a bus. So, I mean, that... <laughs> An that, electric that, bus. That, that, that part. As long uh, as it's electric, a pro-terra electric, electric bus. bus yeah. um, no, look, I, I think that Andrew Yang, you know, true to form, has created a plan that comes directly out of you know, one of the co-working spaces in San Francisco <laughs> and, uh, you know, and like is divorced from the fact that we have 49 additional states to worry about. Um, oh, that's funny. But, you know, but I, 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 the, I do like the fact that he's put geoengineering on the table. I think that the way he described geoengineering was weird and shows a complete lack of understanding um, you know, why you would actually lump together a forestation and direct air capture 
with solar radiation management and space mirrors is weird. Um, but, you know, I guess maybe that's just because he hasn't really thought that part through. Um, I separately think that the nuclear stuff, like, there is a rational way to do nuclear that he doesn't present, right? So you could talk about small modular reactors. Hell, you could even talk about building a whole bunch of empty Navy subs with nuclear reactors in them and just plugging them in offshore, right? And so there's lots of people who have really serious proposals on how to do nuclear, and his is not. His is basically, here's a bunch of money towards nuclear R&D, and I'm sure Bill Gates will figure it out, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The other thing I found just really strange was that, you know, Andrew Yang's really been about universal basic income, and his fee and dividend proposal doesn't tie to universal basic income. Well, that's what he is known for as a candidate, his push for the universal basic income. That's why he's attractive to a lot of people. Um so what you're saying is that like it it just feels like a separate proposal completely apart from the universal the freedom dividend as he calls it. Yeah, in some ways I'm glad that Jay Inslee was in the campaign and like forced people to put out climate plans, but in some ways I think a lot of folks are phoning it in. Um just in time for, you know, the CNN town hall debate coming up and the MSNBC town hall debate that's coming up and I think they're like, "Oh, crap, we got to put in our climate change plans before those debates so our candidate has something to talk about. But I, I just feel like if they really cared about this, it would be more, more coherent. Well, I will give him points for dropping the fee and dividend proposal. I know that the Citizens Climate Lobby has been working on that for some time. Way back when Jim Hansen released his book like in 2009 or something, one of his earlier books, uh, he was talking about the fee and dividend. So this is an idea that I really like a lot, and I'll give him points for at least bringing it up. At least it's it's even if he's not tying them together programmatically, he's he's cons- intellectually consistent. So speaking of the the debate there, uh, what do you make of this CNN town hall? We're going to have each candidate, one candidate each, up on stage for seven hours to talk about climate change. I care about these issues so deeply, but I cannot stomach seven hours of this stuff. How the heck are other Americans supposed to watch this? What do you make of this format? Nobody's going to watch for that long. I I will have trouble watching for seven hours. That just seems insane. Um, The good news is that all of these folks have climate plans and they're all talking about it, which I think is super important because guess what? As soon as we get into the general election and whoever wins the primary is going to be running against someone who doesn't even believe in climate change. We the conversation is going to almost completely stop. All nuance will be lost. So this is the time to try to hash these ideas out and tee something up. So if a Democrat is elected for president, there will be a whole bunch of ideas out there that are ready to launch. But part of the joy in teasing out these proposals is to see how each of them interact with one another. And it's so hard to differentiate the candidates t- unless you hear them explain clearly side by side why their plans are different. And we're not going to get that. And I think that's a shame. Yeah. And I like it when they're able to ask each other questions and kind of challenge each other. I think that's really important, too. Maybe we should have them do a Twitter war amongst all the candidates and they could respond to each other. Oh, like they're not they're not enough Twitter wars. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, maybe CNN can turn this into like the Jerry Lewis telethon and everyone could donate (laughs) carbon credits and buy carbon offsets for seven hours there's a there's a popular energy and climate podcast that i know of that that they're all invited on to oh there you go uh, you've got connections (laughs) with the dnc you want to wrangle them wrangle them up and convince them to send them all over our way no (laughs) no i'm gonna take a pass On to our last topic. We're tackling a story that unfolded this summer while I was away from the microphone. It is HB6, one of the worst energy bills that any state has passed in years. The bill saves two old coal plants, making ratepayers eat the cost of keeping them operating. It saves two nuclear plants, and it slashes renewable energy and efficiency standards. Ohio Republican lawmakers and Governor Mike DeWine are essentially crossing their arms and saying, we are closed to clean energy. It was pushed forward thanks to a flood of campaign cash and dark money coming from outside groups and from First Energy, a major 
Ohio-based utility that has resisted clean energy every step of the way. Uh, We've talked a number of times about First Energy more recently when one of its subsidiaries declared bankruptcy because it held power plants that were uneconomic uh, because it was investing in the wrong technologies or it couldn't diversify. There is now a referendum underway to reverse the bill supported by pro-environment groups, and that is attracting even more dark money spending to scare Ohioans, like this ad, claiming the Chinese are behind the referendum. They took our manufacturing jobs. They shuttered our factories. Now they're coming for our energy jobs. The Chinese government is quietly invading our American electric grid, intertwining themselves financially in our energy infrastructure. Now, a special interest group boosting Chinese financial interests is targeting Ohio's energy, taking Ohio money, exporting Ohio jobs, even risking our national security. They're meddling in our elections. In the coming weeks, you may be approached on the street or at your door to sign a petition to defund U.S. jobs and energy. They'll ask for your name, your address, your signature. Tell them no. Don't sign your name to a plan that kills Ohio jobs, harms Ohio communities, and endangers our energy independence. China turned off the power on Ohio manufacturing. Don't let them do it to you. Don't sign the petition allowing China to control Ohio's power. So what is going on in Ohio? And is this kind of jolting reversal something we could see in other states? Catherine, give us some more detail about what is in HB6. Yeah, I reached out to Rob Kelter at the Environment Law and Policy Center that focuses on the Midwest, and he's assigned to Ohio. And ELPC, what they do is they they argue cases before the Public Utilities Commission. They educate the legislature on the value of clean energy. They work, um, you know, state by state basis in the Midwest. And he said basically that there is nothing good about this. There is nothing defensible about this piece of legislation that not only does it for subsidize these four uncompetitive plants, um, and the the nukes alone are $150 million a year until 2027, um, and remove the RPS and any financial incentives for renewable energy projects. But what they did for energy efficiency, which by the way, has saved customers $5.1 billion since 2009, is because energy efficiency is a line item on people's bills, they're just taking that off. So it makes it look like to people that they're actually saving money when the cost of generation and EE remember replaces generation, but the cost of generation can go up and up without anybody noticing that's very hidden in the bill. Um, you know, basically Ohio is its own Island. It's very gerrymandered. It's um, there is really a philosophy in their legislature that is anti-renewable as a, an expensive non-baseload resource and nuclear is very popular. Of course, they tried to make this as a clean energy bill, but once they threw in the coal bailout too, they couldn't really claim that. But um, that this is very um, limited. It sounded like to Ohio and to that legislature and that it was a able to happen there at just the speed of light. Um, so it was, it was a pretty interesting uh, case study, but I think it is limited. Jigger, we know you got very little love for First Energy. What is their role in all of this? Well, it's actually quite fascinating. Um, you know, First Energy basically started this particular fight um, by uh, weighing in heavily on who the speaker of the um, the House is. So they basically gave the speaker of the House in Ohio about like, I think it was like $500,000 to sprinkle around to other people's campaigns to be able to win the speakership. And so that's how this whole thing got set up. And then once that person became speaker, then they, you know, rammed this bill through. Um, interestingly enough, they actually hired the Dewey Square Group and paid them $800,000. You might remember that name because they're the ones who testified against the climate debate at the DNC last week and, uh, you know, killed the climate debate at the DNC. So it's interesting bedfellows that came together here. Um the other piece of this bill, which is interesting, is they grandfathered 1,000 megawatts of solar utility-scale solar plants. So those 1,000 megawatts of utility-scale solar plants will be built, and those are the ones that were pending in front of the commission um, as part of the compromise. And so that's, that's there as well. I, you know, I don't know what to make of 
Ohio, except to say that um, the state as a whole just seems like, you know, they just don't want to join the the 21st century, which is sad because I think it's a state that that has, you know, great universities and uh, is, in general has produced fantastic technologies, including first solar's technology, but um, but seems really backwards right now on this transition. Yeah, it said Rob said that he did not see that there were going to be any ramifications at the polls at all. But what's also interesting, Jerry, speaking of um, bedfellows, is the gas association and combined with environmental groups. And if consumer groups can get more engaged too, that will be helpful. You know, the gas industry was hoping that they would supplant all the coal and nuclear guys. I mean, they want to build more gas plants. And so they are opposed to this. So the one way that this bill won't go into effect is if there is a referendum that they get enough signatures to um, on in the next election, which I believe would be 2020, that would prevent it from going into effect. So that's why this big uh, fight is starting. Um, it's not fossil versus uh, zero carbon. It's about the incumbents versus the innovators. Yes, these fights often create uh, strange alliances. What about the saving of these two nuclear plants. So I think our collective bias is that we believe in some kind of legislative or regulatory intervention to keep nuclear plants going if they're safe and they have a, a you know a decent life ahead of them to make sure that we're keeping as much clean energy on the grid as possible. And I know, Jigger, you've been involved in some of the compromises uh, in a couple states around the country to keep nuclear plants operating in exchange for, you know, better policies for renewable energy. So, like, I don't think any of us are opposed to some kind of intervention where we say, how do we do this in a way that's good for ratepayers, that promotes more clean energy? Um, what what about the way that they save these two nuclear plants in Ohio? How is it different from what happened in, like, Illinois and New Jersey? Well, it was, it was distasteful. Um, you know, I think... What happened in Illinois, though, was very similar to what happened in Ohio, right? I mean, Illinois had saved the nuclear plants with a clean bill a couple times. And then when they failed to get the vote this last time around, um, they went looking for votes. And they first actually went to the coal uh, plants down south and said, hey, you know, how about we partner up to get enough votes to you know, get some subsidies for you and some subsidies for us, right? And then when that failed, then Exelon was like, fine, we'll help the renewable energy and energy efficiency industries. But but the, their first move was not to go to renewable energy and efficiency. Their first move was to try to partner with the coal plants in southern Illinois. Um, and when they didn't get the votes, then they were forced to work with renewable energy and efficiency. Yeah, I, I think definitely they got a lot more out of the deal in Illinois, the renewable energy folks did. Um, one of the bigger issues that um, Rick Drum from Eckerd Siemens has written about really well is the impact on the competitive markets. And the fact that if you look you kind of need to look regionally. And regionally, PJM has the largest capacity reserve in the nation, that there's adequate transmission at PJM, that by propping up uneconomic plants, it really makes the market not work as well as it should be working. And so that's that's part of the biggest issue is that just from a market standpoint, um, you don't need those plants to make it work. And I'm not sure how that's going to impact you know, FERC's thinking on all of this when states are doing things that are really, really different from each other. Well, I mean, you know, when we had 104 degree temperatures in the D.C. area, PJM electricity prices barely rose above $50 a megawatt hour. Final question. If this is happening today, what's to say that it won't happen in other states? Ohio has had troubles, political troubles on this front for years. But, uh, I mean, is this a warning sign for other states that we could see some pretty dramatic reversals or is it unique to Ohio? I mean, I think it's specific in this instance to Ohio. Um, I don't think Michigan and Wisconsin and Illinois are going to go backwards. I mean, these guys are seeing huge economic benefits, as Jigger would say, to moving to clean energy and the energy transition. So I don't think everybody else is going to jump on this bandwagon. Let us go to our free electrons, find out what is on our minds inside and outside of energy 
Usually it's something wonky related to energy, but who knows what kind of grab bag of stuff we're going to get. Catherine, what is your free electron? Yeah, so one of the things I saw when I was just kind of puttering around the internet in the mountains trying to avoid any news was CNN put out this little quiz that you can take on your phone or computer. The most effective ways to curb climate change might surprise you. And you take a quiz where you rank order different solutions. So some are food, people and goods, homes and cities, how we use our land, electricity use, waste management, empowering women, um, and then ranking all of those different topics. And I did really, really poorly. (laughs) I came out as like just learning about climate. So yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the scoring. I think (laughs) that if you don't get it completely right, you don't get credit. But uh, anyway, it's interesting. Everybody should check it out. Wait, do you have a sample question? Yeah, so our food. So you have to rank order throwing away less food, eating a plant-heavy diet, cooking over clean stoves, or composting your waste. What the hell is a clean stove? Like, what's their well, definition? Well, like clean rather stove? than not natural yeah, gas. Well, rather than burn, it, this is like for developing countries. Rather than burning um, wood or coal, would you use like you know clean fuel? What it, it seems like they're mixing up stuff. Okay, well, I'm just going to go with what I think probably a lot of people would pick, which is the plant-based diet. Yeah, plant-based diet is number one. Cooking over clean stoves is number two. Uh, and then they say, you know, what this equates to on million cars off the road. Ranking three is throwing away less food and composting waste is the last. I don't trust CNN on these things. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was kind of interesting. And yes, I was mad, but, you know. CNN wrote these like series of reports after the like the, the most recent dire UN climate report. And they're like, if you're scared about the UN climate report, here are some things you can do. Change your light bulbs. Go for a walk down your neighborhood instead of driving your car. It's like, are you kidding me? The they're so far divorced from reality of what needs to happen. I just I don't trust CNN on this one. Sorry. Let's not undermine a free press here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't trying to get too deep on this. I just said it was fun to take. <laughs> Maybe I'm just being prematurely defensive in case I fail the quiz. <laughs> Jigger, what's your free electron? So I don't know if you guys have been following this craziness in LA. But um, so the city council of Los Angeles has not approved the eight minute energy project at like three cents a kilowatt hour of solar plus storage for LAWP because the IBW is basically threatening every every politician in L.A. with, you know, primary challenges and stuff if they don't if they don't kill this project. Um, So there's this huge fight, and Eric Garcetti basically refuses to show leadership to push this project through the city council, which he can just push through. And and so, like, the three-cent per kilowatt-hour solar plus storage deal from 8-Minute Energy from Nevada may actually be, you know, on the ropes because Eric Garcetti isn't pushing this through. Yeah, it's nuts. What does that tell you about the coming conflict between unions and developers? Well, so I don't think it's unions, to be clear. I think it's only the IBW. Okay. Um, the roofers union and the laborers union and others have been quite supportive of clean energy for decades in California. It's mostly the IBW, and that's because the vast majority of their membership is tied to utilities as well as to power plant operations. And so they don't like the fact that Garcetti's been shutting down, you know, natural gas power plants in the city. And uh, so, you know, I think it's basically going to be the past versus the future. And I think at some point, you know, all of these union members are going to have to get on board with the future. Otherwise, we're going to all be in a lot of trouble. Well, I dug into the past for my uh, free electron. This one uh, is thanks to Doug Lewin, who on Twitter pointed out that it was recently the 200th. 200th year anniversary of the death of James Watt, um, the Scottish inventor who helped improve the steam engine design in the mid to late 1700s. I didn't know a lot about James Watt, so I clicked through that link that Doug Lewin sent around. It sent me down a steam-powered rabbit hole, and uh, I learned a lot about James Watt. And there was one story that jumped out to me that felt really relevant to the many entrepreneurs and business people who listen to this podcast. Um, I should say that James Watt, the the Watt was named after him. He also m- invented the unit of measurement 
um, horsepower. And in the 1760s, he designed a much more powerful steam engine, building off the original design like 50 years earlier from Thomas Newcomen. But he didn't have the money to get it to scale. And so what did he do? Well, he worked on it, but then he almost ran out of money. And he met this uh, mine owner who was having a difficulty with flooding in his mine. And he went to him and he said, okay, you have this direct need for... um, this steam engine, I can pump out water out of your mine, uh, and and you can finance it, and we can test it together, and then we'll go into business together. And that gave him enough time to make a connection to test to, to test his new steam engine design, uh, make a connection with another major major industrial tycoon, and then he eventually manufactured it at scale. And the time between like his initial thoughts on how to improve the steam engine to when they started manufacturing it was over a decade, and. It's just time and time again we see this, that like energy technologies like this that are world-changing do take a long time to materialize. And very often, you know, these companies or inventors are at the edge of chaos and some fortuitous situation emerges. And I just really liked that story. And I, I, I just learned all about James Watt in the last day. <laughs> and that is not to be confused with the James Watt who was the Secretary of of interior under Ronald Reagan and was considered one of the 10 worst cabinet appointees ever. <laughs> so the, the moral of the story is project finance? Yeah, exactly. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was teeing you up there, Jigger. <laughs> oh, love and it. And thank you for the clarification, Catherine. Of course you would know that. <laughs> That's going to wrap it up, folks. We are going to uh, we're going to close it out there. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts. Thanks to both of you. Good to have the gang back together after a few weeks of travel. You can find all our back episodes at Green Tech Media. Sign up for our newsletter and get this podcast and all our other news articles. Just go to greentechmedia.com slash newsletter. Um, find us on social media. All three of us are there. The Energy Gang is there. We do listen to your feedback. We... At least I can speak for myself. I find it hard to respond to a lot of people, but I look at everything and it really does influence um, the way we talk about this show. And heck, Doug Lewin, who put out that thing on James Watt, piqued my interest. And sure enough, I got a whole segment on James Watt. So uh, there you have it. Please you know, let us know your thoughts on the show and what you want to hear about. And we will listen. Um, you can uh, check us out on any podcast app of your choice as well. And give us a rating and review on iTunes. I am Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next week. Thanks very much.